Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Amber McKinney is out this week. I am your host, Alex Lawson, and with me as always is my co-host, Haley Knopf. Haley, hello. Hello, Alex. What is up? Other than Amber's absence. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, both not much is up and quite a bunch is Pretty up. Pretty much everything, actually. Yeah. As will become evident as we talk here, I want to let the people know that you're just going to be flying with Haley and I this week. We don't have a guest. There's a lot to get to. And I think it just makes sense to start with, Haley, I don't know if you heard about this. There was an election. Did you hear about this? Did you see? No. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, imagine. Yeah, another thing I guess that's noteworthy is we are actually recording this on a Wednesday instead yeah. of a Thursday. And that means we are still in the middle of all this election drama. Yeah, and that's as good a place to start as any, I suppose. The big news of the day as we record here on a late Wednesday afternoon is that as of now, we still don't know which party is going to be running the legislative branch of the U.S. government. That's sort of the top line story. A lot of races are in flux, but you don't really come to Law 360 for that stuff. You can read about that in any number of places, though we do have good writing on that. I wanted to use this space, though, here at the top of the show to talk about a few interesting ballot initiatives, referendums, just ballot measures that were up for a vote around the country that touch on a number of topics that we cover a lot on the show. It goes to a lot of different policy areas that I think are pretty interesting. Hell yeah, let's get into it. It was quite a night for a lot of these top of mind issues lately. Yeah, and I think the most sensible place to start is with uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights. And I think, you know, to date here in, you know, almost the middle of November, I think the biggest legal story of the year is the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe versus Wade which, as I think most people know, removed the federally protected right to an abortion and kind of moved this battle over reproductive rights to the states. And that has, you know, manifested in a couple different ways, which is to say state legislatures, state courts, and state ballot boxes, which came to fruition during Tuesday's midterm elections. And voters in three states, California, Vermont, and Michigan, approved amendments to their state constitutions that explicitly protected access to abortions. And there were a couple of different fault lines here, but California and Vermont's new amendments create an explicit right to reproductive freedom and reproductive autonomy, while Michigan's amendment basically overruled this 1931 law that had criminalized most abortions in the state. And we actually talked about this shortly after the Supreme Court came out with its Dobbs decision. That law in Michigan had basically laid dormant, wasn't enforced since the Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. And the reversal of that decision kind of raised the possibility that this law, this Michigan law, could be revived. But voters uh, have basically snuffed that out now. Uh, also wanted to mention that in Kentucky, voters rejected the addition of an amendment that would outlaw abortion. So, I mean, that is still a, that's a pro-abortion vote, um, or, or rather a pro-abortion rights vote. Um, and that is sort of like falls in line similar to a measure that was defeated by Kansas voters earlier this year. As we're recording here on Wednesday, 
Still too close to call is a referendum in Montana that is known as a born alive bill. And that allows doctors and nurses, or or rather it requires doctors and nurses to administer life-sustaining care to newborns regardless of their condition. And that referendum has been criticized by doctors groups and other sort of specialty interest groups for basically prohibiting palliative care, kind of forcing the hand of medical personnel to provide sustaining care regardless of the sort of medical status of this newly born person, even in the face of like lethal fetal birth defects or previable preterm birth. So the verdict is still out on that uh, as we count the votes here late on Wednesday. But that's sort of just a top of line uh, summation of what's going on in the uh, some of the reproductive initiatives. Yeah, it's interesting. There are so many different ways, I guess, and like angles that these measures are tackling. But thus far, it's all been mostly in favor or the voters have been in favor of abortion rights, no matter the different angles that are being tackled here. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's somewhat attenuated in the sense that like you can either enshrine an affirmative abortion right in your state constitution which California and Vermont did. And then, you know, Michigan just had to do kind of a more technical thing where it sort of overturns this somewhat Baroque, you know, some would say outdated law. But, you know, we'll keep an eye on some of the stuff that's still in flux there. One other issue I wanted to touch on was cannabis legalization, which we've talked about. Sam Reisman, our senior cannabis reporter, was on the show just a few weeks ago. And he was talking about the Biden administration and its sort of federal cannabis policy. and. That is a nuanced topic, but one of the big takeaways from our talk with Sam was that this is still, first and foremost, a state-level fight, and that is that definitely was like shown in some of these ballot initiatives on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, Maryland and Missouri became the 20th and 21st states to legalize weed for recreational adult use while Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota all defeated legalization measures there. I also wanted to mention that in Colorado, which I think most people know is really kind of a vanguard for marijuana legalization, they legalized it like 10 years ago, I think, was very ahead of the curve on this. And they have, as you might expect, their electorate is kind of moving into the next phase of drug legalization, drug liberalization issues. Voters there were presented with a measure to decriminalize psychedelics. So, you know, psychedelic mushrooms and other things like that. And this measure would also pave the way for the state to regulate treatment centers for those drugs. As we sit here today, the supporters of that sort of reform effort held a narrow lead, but still a little too close to call. So a little bit of a taste there on uh, where the winds are blowing for drug legalization. I feel like it's noteworthy, even though we don't have the results yet, it is noteworthy in itself that the Colorado measure hasn't, you know, been soundly defeated or anything. I mean, people are at least split enough on it for it to get to this stage in the in the ballot counting. Yeah, yeah, it's a close one. Um, and it's it's going right down to the wire, even as I, I was refreshing it, like, you know, minutes before we started recording here. And that's sort of how this policy tends to work. It's like if you legalize marijuana, then like it goes to decriminalizing the next round of drugs. And then, you know, you see where you go from there. 
the last sort of, and this is by no means exhaustive, I did want to give a shout out to everybody at Law 360 who did great work on election night, both for congressional races, AG races, all this stuff. Haley, I think I saw a uh, late byline from you on a, on a certain California measure, correct? Indeed, indeed. I did a pre-write <laughs> on a story and someone else stayed up super late to uh, follow the actual vote count. So shout out to uh, Ryan. <laughs> but but yeah, I covered the uh, the flavored tobacco ban in California, which passed. Yeah. Do you vape, Haley? I don't. Yeah. I do not. Do you? Me neither. Uh, no, okay. no, no, not at all. Um, anyway, uh, that's a scintillating conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, uh, and uh, we don't have put a, a pin in that one. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we'll put a pin in it. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about also involves California because voters there rejected two different ballot initiatives that would have legalized sports betting, which I think even a casual observer would know that you know, sports betting has really exploded in popularity after the 2018 Supreme Court decision, which basically opened the floodgates for states to legalize sports betting if they chose to do so. I think there's something like 30 states plus the District of Columbia where sports betting is legal in some form. And voters in California were presented with two different ballot propositions, one of which would have legalized sports gambling at racetracks and at Native American tribal-owned casinos, so in-person sports betting, and then another proposition that would have legalized it through online betting, which is like the more popular, unlike apps like DraftKings and FanDuel and things like that. But both measures were defeated, and that came in the face of really fierce lobbying to pass them, which came in the form of like hundreds of millions of dollars to get yeah. some form of sports gambling passed. Now, I mean, Haley, you're on, you live in California. You might have a better sense of like the public sentiment on this. Um, it's legal here in New York where I live. I don't know. Do you have any, like, yeah, was there I, like a sense that this might pass or I don't know? Yeah, these were super, super expensive measures. I think they were the most expensive on the whole ballot. These two were, but I didn't, do any of the juicy reporting on that. Bonnie did. Yeah, Bonnie Esslinger did an awesome breakdown because there are two propositions. There are a lot of different ways that this could have gone. And because one authorized in-person sports betting and the other authorized online sports betting, it created, even though both are sports betting legalization measures, it created a, like some messy fault lines that she laid out really well in her reporting. I would definitely recommend everybody check that out. Basically, what you need to know is that there is a provision in California law that stipulates that if there are two measures on the ballot that cover similar subject matter and both receive 50% approval, the one with the most votes becomes law over the other one. Now, neither of these got close to that, but that was like really informing a lot of the like competing lobbying here because it was like, okay, we both want the same things, but we're arguing about it in like more nuanced ways. And it led to a lot of sort of internecine partisan sniping among, you know, mm -hmm. parties that are both trying to legalize sports gambling in California. So the tribal casinos, as I mentioned, which were obviously in favor of the in-person betting measure, had campaigned hard against the online sports betting prop because they thought it would threaten their business. Yeah, makes now, there sense. Were, yeah, now there were also tribes in California 
who are not affiliated with, with the tribes that own casinos that then campaigned for online betting. So it became, it wasn't like, like such a clean dynamic here. And it was just fascinating to see. Anyway, the point is they both failed. And as Bonnie wrote in her story, it led to at least some measure of like voter confusion where it's like, hey, there's two things on the ballot that legalize sports betting and they're in competition and maybe they don't like each other. And the general sort of political philosophy consensus is that, you know, voters tend to vote against things they don't understand. So to the extent that like one was muddling the other, they probably maybe stole votes from one another or just resulted in no votes. So um, that's just a taste of a couple of the Mm -hmm. top line items. I would definitely, again, recommend uh, if you're interested in this stuff, we had wall to wall coverage on Law 360, both on congressional races and key attorney general races, judge races, these ballot initiatives that I've been talking about. So definitely check that out. Um, Everybody uh, did a great job, yourself included, Haley. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I do want to turn back to, I apologize. Once again, we are talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. I swear it's different. It's fresh. (laughs) It's new. This time, the Elon Twitter saga has spilled over into the courtroom relating to an employment issue, though. Yeah. So as I'm sure you've heard, shortly after Musk officially purchased the company, Twitter started laying off thousands of its workers. Well, now some of those laid off employees have filed a proposed class action in California federal court alleging violations of the federal and state laws that lay out how companies must go about mass layoffs. I do want to be clear. Musk is not himself named as a defendant in the suit. It's just filed against Twitter. So, you know, you can draw the connections that you want to, but legally Elon is not involved. Yeah. I mean, if he's owning if he owns Twitter now, it's sort of a distinction He'll without still have a to difference. Foot the, but yes, it's the attorney bill. <laughs> yeah, right, of course. And it's not if it's not in his personal capacity yet, and he could be added later, I suppose. Now, I don't know. This is an employment issue we're talking about, so he's not been brought up on charges of cringe for bringing a sink into Twitter AQ, uh, uh, HQ on his first <laughs> oh, day boy. in San Francisco. That one took me like five <laughs> minutes to even understand the joke he was trying to make. I know. And then I was like, no, no. Well, he's an exuberant guy. Okay. (laughs) So one of his first orders of business, as you've already said, is he cleaned house, much of the executive suite. Who are these former employees? I mean, what kinds of employees are we talking about here? And what are their allegations? As a reminder, so Musk officially purchased Twitter on October 27th. And that was after, you know, all of the other turmoil and litigation over the deal itself, which we've discussed on several occasions. Yes. But so the day Musk took over, several of his top executives, including CEO, were either fired or just said they were leaving the company. And then shortly after that is when Twitter started laying off thousands of its employees. All told, about half of the total workforce was let go on Friday. So the plaintiffs in this case, they're not executives or anything. Okay. They are five lower level former employees who say they received no warning before they were terminated. Three of them said that they were simply locked out of their Twitter like email accounts and everything, which they understood meant, oh, okay, I'm laid off. And they're saying that's a violation of both the Federal Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act and then California's own version of that law. And that's because they said 
employers in this sort of situation are required to provide notice. They can't just turn off your email and then be like, all right, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It also came out, I think some people who were even maybe like in transit to work that morning received an email that was like, go home and see if you've received a retention email. It was like Hunger Games or something. Yeah. Like, the, find out if you've, been, if you've been chosen to stay at the company. Um, harrowing, harrowing. But then, yeah, there has been now, because of these firings and the ensuing lawsuit, which we're going to talk about more here, a pretty enthusiastic discussion about what those laws that you just rattled off there say about whether and to what extent you have to notify people before doing mass layoffs and what counts as a, quote, mass layoff and things like that. Mm -hmm. Can you just walk us through like the broad parameters of those laws? Absolutely. Under the Federal WARN Act, that's the, the nice acronym there, employers are required to provide a written notice to employees at least 60 days before effectuating a, quote, mass layoff or a plant closing at a single site of employment. What constitutes a mass layoff? Well, under the law, it needs to affect at least 33% of the employees and a minimum of 50 employees in a 30-day period. California's WARN Act also requires these same things. And as you hinted at the top of the segment here, um, must get sued a lot, let's just be honest. And I don't want to like trod all those lawsuits out, but he and other companies that he owns have faced allegations like this before, specifically at Tesla, mm-hmm. with regard to layoffs that came somewhat suddenly. What happened with that? In June, Tesla workers sued their former employer in Texas federal court. And in that one, they were claiming that Tesla actually urged employees to sign agreements releasing their Warren Act rights in exchange for one or two weeks of severance pay. So what's interesting about this Twitter one is the worker's lawyer, the former employee's lawyer, actually said that this suit was filed preemptively to make sure that Twitter workers wouldn't get the same treatment that those Tesla employees allegedly faced. That attorney is former Massachusetts Attorney General Shannon Liss Reardon, and she also represented the Tesla workers. She told Law360 that it was widely reported that Twitter intended to lay off half its workforce Employees had received no information or warning, and she just, like, wants them to understand their rights. Here's her quote. We wanted to make sure that if other employees were asked to sign a release, they had knowledge of their rights and potential claims. Now, of course, we're also now seeing mass layoffs at Meta. Not a great time for the social media workforce, to say the least. Merits of, you know, any litigation aside, hope everyone knows their rights. And hope everyone's treated with dignity. Because boy, have I seen some rough layoffs in the newspaper industry in my uh, <laughs> my newspaper days. Yes, yes, we've all been there. Super interesting story, obviously. I mean, the, the Musk Twitter experience has been off to an interesting start. And this is only just one quite interesting uh, component of that. So for our next story, I wanted to get into the dismissal of a defamation suit from the founder of Barstool Sports, a man named Dave Portnoy, and uh, he sued the online news outlet 
Insider, formerly known as Business Insider, for publishing articles about his sexual encounters with young women uh, that featured some pretty heinous depictions of sexual misconduct, basically amounting to allegations of sexual assault. And as very often happens with defamation suits like this, we've talked about this quite a lot in the last couple of weeks, Portnoy's case basically fell on its face because he's a public figure and he couldn't prove that these stories from Insider were published with, quote, actual malice, which I think most people know is the heightened defamation standard for famous people, public figures in legal nomenclature. Uh, And uh, this kind of really put a pin in something that had a lot of eyeballs in sports and sports media. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to uh, to go over the uh, the particulars here. Yeah. Defamation cases are always really difficult. I feel like to uh, they're interesting, but very difficult to to get a win, it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's get to the specifics of this one. What's the whole deal with Barstool and Portnoy and and the allegations? Yeah, I mean, if you don't know, I mean, they're they're a pretty obviously popular media company. But what you need to know is that Barstool Sports is a sports and pop culture blog that Portnoy founded as an actual physical newspaper in Boston, where he's from, uh, almost two decades ago. It it was and is currently known for kind of like a very crass, masculine, provocative tone, and has kind of in the ensuing years has grown into this full-blown media empire with content, podcasts, videos. They have like TV network arrangements. And uh, now they have been a significant stake and the company has been purchased by the gambling company Penn National. Man, I did not know. I had no idea that this started as a physical newspaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was back in like just sort of like those little like kiosk sort of things that would be like next to like the the, the handouts and the local paper. Now, Insider, which again is, as I said, is was formerly known as Business Insider, in 2020 and 2021 published a pair of articles about Portnoy's encounters with young women. And it featured alleged sexual encounters, basically, that the story said began as consensual, but turned, quote, violent and humiliating for some of these women, two of whom claimed that Portnoy filmed these dalliances without their consent. Now, Portnoy denied these allegations as they were described in the story, and he eventually sued. He claimed that the articles defamed him and that they were published to basically lure readers in to Insider to buy subscriptions to access Insider's paywalled stories. So he's basically, it was basically a cut and dried sort of like, I don't think that this happened as it was described, and I'm suing you for defaming my character. Yeah, you're just trying to get rich off me. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the suit has failed. What are the particulars of that? Yeah, so this is actually, this is the second week in a row we talked about like the finer points of defamation here. And I mentioned this last week when we talked about Nate the lawyer, the uh, law tuber. Um, But the thing to know is that if the subject of a defamation claim is a public figure, which is something that neither side disputed in the Portnoy case, he is a very famous media person, that figure, Portnoy in this case, he needs to show that any claims against him are not only false, but that they were made 
against him with, quote, actual malice, which means that you have to show that these statements were intentionally made with the intent of, like, harming you. So it's not just like, oh, I said something about you that was wrong. I did it with, like, malice in my mind to make you look bad. And that's a very high standard, and that's what what you were hinting at before, Haley, which is why a lot of defamation cases are either dismissed at an early stage, like this one was, or get settled. And uh, in this case, Massachusetts Judge F. Dennis Saylor said that Portnoy's complaint claimed that he was illegally targeted by these insider stories, but the facts of the case just could not support that they did so with malice, with intentional malice in their minds. Here was a sort of a key quote. The complaint fails to lay out sufficient facts from which it may be inferred that defendants published the articles with actual malice. The complaint contends in general terms that defendants made the allegedly defamatory statements with a knowing and reckless disregard of the truth, but its specific factual allegations do not support that conclusion. Now, the judge found that part of insider's defense is that these articles are very carefully reported and they're very careful in what they do not say. And the judge found that the articles, while they describe these like horrific sexual scenarios, don't explicitly accuse Portnoy of sexual assault. And they're just relaying the experiences of the people that they talk to. Here was another quote where the judge goes a little deeper on that concept. The complaint does not allege that insiders' anonymous sources were fake or that the articles misrepresented what the women told the defendants. Furthermore, plaintiff admits that insider investigated its first article for months, requested an interview with him, sought his comment before publication, included his denials, and hyperlinked to his press conference and his lawyer's full denial letter. So, you know, Haley, you and I, you know, we work in journalism. We know that this Mm -hmm. is kind of The basic, I mean, when you're reporting on a hot button issue here, you do want to give, if you're levying some pretty serious claims against a person or a company or whatever, whatever it might be, you know, giving them some voice in this. And the judge found that the insider reporters here did do that. So yeah, it sounds like they did what you're supposed to do. Yeah. um, And certainly in the eyes of this judge anyway. And so, and I think a reasonable observer would agree. Portnoy posted a video um, basically saying that the result was disappointing, though not surprising to him. He again nodded to this concept that public figures face a tough road in trying to prove defamation. He could still appeal, and um, he kind of is kind of known for just kind of giving like a gut reaction when things like this happen without maybe always going through legal counsel. But he did say that he didn't have much hope that any appeal would result in a different outcome. So, you know, we don't know yet. I mean, he could still file, but it seems for now, at least based on those comments, that the matter is closed and it's a pretty open and shut case of not being able to, um, you know, achieve the high bar of uh, defaming a public figure. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and very much within that, uh, Bailiwick, is celebrities getting messy in litigation, and certainly when it involves a magazine giant, mm-hmm. you know, we're never, we're never going to turn away from that. 
Uh, Haley, what's going on in this case? Alex, first off, yeah. are you a Drake fan? We've never talked about this. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I was talking to my wife the other, like, a couple of, like, weeks ago, and I was like, I'm kind of a dinosaur in that I actually still listen to the radio when I drive. Um, we have I do, a, too. We have an older car that doesn't have satellite radio, so I still tune in to, like, earthbound, like, actual FM radio. Same. And I was saying, I was like, I can't wait to tell my son in like 30 years. I was like, you have to understand every other song on the radio had Drake on it in some capacity. I don't know. I mean, he's he's OK. He's a, I mean, everybody's like he's like pretty corny, um, but he's like a hit maker, you know, and it's just like you get some bangers. But I don't really take him that seriously as like a serious artist. I think that's a great take. Well, he's, okay. uh, <laughs> thank you. Well, I worked on it for a long time. I think it's a great take because I agree. <laughs> so okay. other people might cool. disagree. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think he has like, you know, he has some bops. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but in general, his records have never really uh, captured me because they all, all the tracks blend together. Yeah, I know that's yeah, like yeah. a, maybe like a, I don't know, a lack of detail on my part, attention to detail. I don't know. Well, but, then like with the, between the sampling, which is, I mean, people have been sampling in hip hop for 40 years Forever. now, I guess. But like, but it's like between that and like the featuring another track, like I don't have like he doesn't like make a distinctive footprint. Anyway, what Full is the agree. story we're talking about? <laughs> so the story yeah. is Condé Nast has actually sued Drake and 21 Savage over promotion of what I've deemed their new sad boy album <laughs> called Her Loss. Wow. What a title. That promotion included a fake Vogue cover and some fake magazine pages. And then also it involved Drake directly thanking editor-in-chief <laughs> Anna Wintour for her support, according to the suit. Okay. Uh, now, I know a couple of things. I mean, I don't... Listen, I've seen Devil Wears Prada, which is a fictionalized uh, Anna Winter document. And, you know, that's a very image-conscious person. Condé Nast is a huge media company. We can imagine the bounds of creative license here and all of that. What does the complaint actually say from Condé Nast? It highlights uh, social media posts from the rappers. So, like I said, Drake thanked Anna in one of these. So, uh, he posted a photo of the fake Vogue cover. And then the caption was, Me and my brother on newsstands tomorrow. Thanks, Vogue magazine and Anna Winter for the love and support on this historic moment. Her loss, November 4th. And according <laughs> to Condé, yeah. that all created a ton of confusion. And what I thought was really entertaining was it was not just confusion among Drake's followers or music fans, but also among media outlets. Condé Nast said that some outlets were so convinced that this cover was that this was like a legitimate cover feature right that they were running stories about the artists landing the cover of Vogue ahead of the album's release and then announcing that the latest issue would hit newsstands on October 31st <laughs> I mean we're like joking about this a little bit but like demonstrating and I don't know if this I mean this is a freshly filed suit we'll see what it, it'll probably get settled but like but I do know enough to know that, like, pointing to actual confusion is a huge part of prevailing in suits like this. And the idea that you could say, like, hey, people picked this up and thought, you know, 
the fall issue was going to be talking about Drake and the and this Twenty One Savage album is interesting to me. It is, you know, <laughs> it's. <laughs> but what are the what are the claims here? The actual claims are uh, trademark infringement, counterfeiting, false designation of origin, unfair competition, trademark dilution, false advertisement, and violations of New York general business law. So a whole bunch of stuff here. And I did want to, just while it's top of mind, I feel like this confusion thing. Yeah. While, you know, and who who knows where this will end up. I feel like this is uh, like a victory in a way for their graphic designer that they did such a good job that everyone is confused. <laughs> and I guess like this was probably their, like they probably want, I, I shouldn't be speculating, but if you want to drum up a bunch of interest, like it doesn't hurt to have people genuinely thinking that you landed the cover. Not but, saying it's like a legal move, but no, you know, no, no, no. Wildly speculating. <laughs> I think you're on the right track. I mean, you know, what if, I mean, the whole point is publicity. I mean, that's not even a controversial thing to say. Uh, you know, the whole point is to scare up publicity. This had me thinking um, about what, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm always guilty of kind of taking this angle, but what the Law 360 version of this would be if some <laughs> law firm was like, hey, where they drop some, like, they're like launching a new practice group or something, let's say, some firm is launching, like, I don't know, an antitrust practice in, like, Seattle or something. And they would be like, hey, Law 360 is all over this. And it's like lawyers, like, splashed on the front page of the website. I don't know. We might sue. It's not they for could, me to say. That's not my <laughs> call. But I yeah, do. Yeah, they could falsely claim that they're, like, they're a regional powerhouse or something. Yeah. Hey, look, we take that stuff really serious. <laughs> um, but... You know, you've riled up Anna Winter, Drake. Um, yeah. So, I don't Yikes. know. Yeah, and we'll so see how it goes. Conde <laughs> actually wants, they want them to, like, delete all of this. They want them to delete the social media posts, destroy all the physical stuff. And they also want a ton of damages. Like, they're like, give us the record sales. Like, give oh, it God. all to us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is, it is an interesting one. Also, I wanted to note that as of Wednesday... It doesn't look like Drake or 21 Savage have commented on this, but if you need me to, I will do it. I will DM them. <laughs> I will get an answer. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I will. Okay. I mean, do it. I feel like we should probably, we should probably just cut the show off now so you can get to this. <laughs> This like intrepid reporting that we're talking about here. Uh, a fascinating story as always. <laughs> thanks for bringing that one to us. And uh, I thought it was a pretty good show. Haley, thanks for joining me. Thank you. We have many other people to thank for helping us pull the show together this week, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters, Gina Kim, Chris Villani, Irene Spezamonte, Sam Reisman, Bonnie Esslinger, and Hannah Albarazzi, and everyone else who helped pull together Law 360's outstanding election coverage. Again, everybody go check that out. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please, please, please go leave us a written review on your podcast platform of choice so that other people can find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That is law360.com slash podcast. 
Thanks, and join us again next week.